All right. Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, and this is increment 86. And we'll be going to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Strongly considering doing a New Year's message, and we're on the other side of having done a Christmas message this year. And we're in between then, those two messages. Increment 86, we'll begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've brought us to this point through an enormously unusual year in our history, in our history as an assembly. And we pray now that the meditations of my heart that I'm about to report would be acceptable in your sight and that the incentive and encouragement that comes from this message will be extraordinary for all the listeners to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Today we have three kings. No, I mean three fellow collaborators with me in the audio-visual booth. And I'm sure they're all masked up because they're all robbers and bandits But it's great to have Mark the Perfect Man with us today, Mark Gillis. It's good to have the Embassy Marine in the booth today, Emery Persinger. And we also have Sweet Baby James in the booth. All three of these men are my invaluable co-laborers, and I'm very grateful for their collaboration. I'm extremely grateful for the most blessed, being the most blessed of all pastors to have such a congregation that the Lord has graced me out with all these many years. And I'm very grateful for all. Now, there's going to be a little bit of a personal note today, but I think it's going to play in very importantly to our study of Hebrews and to our study of a theological exegesis of Hebrews today. I've made no secret of the fact that Bernard Lonergan has had a profound influence on me as a Christian and as a pastor teacher. And this fact is a particularly heartening providence to me because of my very early history as a young man of 21, age 21, who had a life-altering encounter with the living God in 1972. Because of that event, everything in my life got turned upside down on its way to being right side up. Everything in my life, mostly on the inside, was profoundly shaken at first. I didn't appear for some time, to be one who was settled in spirit or changed for the better. I wasn't at all. I was mercifully shattered and did not realize for some time how glorious that shattering was and what it would lead to. Because I went so far as to quit college weeks short of my graduation in my senior year in 1973 at the University of Vermont, My father, who 
paid my way there was understandably deeply upset. I couldn't even articulate to him or to my mother what had happened to me and the profound change that it wrought. I couldn't really tell anyone. I was floundering and confused about what direction to take in life. And only by God's glorious grace did he set right all the things I did rashly during that initial season and without apparent reason in the months that followed that shaking. My father and I, when we finally got to talk one day, he told me that he thought what was happening to me was a flashback from a kind of a hallucinogenic drug trip I must have taken. My dad wasn't a churchgoer. Something happened to him in his teen years that was pretty traumatic and related to church, so it deterred him from being a churchgoer. He later became a very strong believer. My mom was a faithful Roman Catholic until her death. Both of my parents expressed faith in God and in Jesus Christ in their later years, made it very clear to me. And I'm grateful that our relationship was not only restored, but made much better. And I did finish at the University of Vermont. But during the original and initial crisis, and this is a very warm memory for me, and a funny one actually, my dad in his frustration didn't know where to turn for counsel for what had happened to me, so he urged me to talk to some Jesuit priests. <laughs> I didn't even know who Jesuit priests are, and I'm not sure he did either, but he was a postal clerk and had a lot of meetings with the public and probably met one or two of them. They were noted back then as being kind of men's men type of guys as well as priests. So of all people, I want you to talk to a Jesuit priest, he said, priests from the what they call the Society of Jesus. And I never did follow his advice, at least not on purpose. But it happens that one of the most profound human influencers that I can point to in all these years as I approach my eighth decade, I guess, was a Jesuit priest named Father Lonergan. I never met Bernard Lonergan in person, but I surely read him and avidly some of my most profound influencers are people I've never met face to face. Paul the Apostle, formerly Saul of Tarsus, comes immediately to mind as someone who motivated and taught me much more than Lonergan, of course. Similarly, John the Beloved Disciple, Peter the Apostle, the mysterious author of Hebrews come to mind as influencers. Now, Lonergan didn't convince me to reconvert to Roman Catholicism or to go back to the so-called church, the church. Instead, he taught me a way of thinking 
that has since been called critical realism. Critical realism. It's a way of getting to the truth that requires, and this is what makes it tough on teachers and theologians, it's a way of getting to the truth that demands a genuineness in the subject, in the searcher, in the researcher, in the teacher, especially the researcher and teacher of the scriptures and of theology. I can say that I learned from Lonergan with the indispensable aid of the Holy Spirit how to do and live theology. I think we all learn to do what we do under the guidance of the Holy Spirit when it comes to the scriptures or we don't learn anything at all. And I think when we all learn to do that, we will indeed together become a society of Jesus. Critical realism goes along with Lonergan's cognitive theory or cognitional theory. Now, this is all going somewhere, and I'll prove it in a few minutes. Critical realism goes along with Lonergan's cognitional theory, which relates precisely to what we've been considering of late with the five levels of consciousness in Hebrews. Another Jesuit priest, an able theologian and teacher, as well as an extraordinarily knowledgeable student of Lonergan, Robert Duran, who's still with us, has been a godsend into my life both as a Christian and a pastor teacher. I've not met him personally either, and I'm awaiting his latest book called The Redemption of History. Their influence has not been parochial or distinctly Roman Catholic, but theological in general. I've been equally influenced by a Lutheran theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, whose contribution to me has not been Lutheran, nor has it been ideological or political. He has his own political views. But his influence has been strictly theological. It's a credit to these men that you really can't brand them with a Catholic or a Protestant iron. Now, I'm saying this not because I have a particular urge to give my personal testimony. I don't. But because I think it's incumbent on anyone who teaches to reveal the sources or the influencers that he or she has had. Science in general, which has been getting a lot of play lately, is a collaborative effort. Few women or men of science have ever made discoveries that benefited humanity without having stood on the shoulders of scientists that have gone before them or without the collaboration of other scientists of their own time. The same is true in the science of theology and of biblical interpretation for that matter. John Donne's famous words, no man is an island, surely pertains to the theologian. Lonergan himself made it very clear that advances in theological insight are the result of collaboration of specialists, including research, history, 
interpretation, systematics, foundations, dialectics, doctrines, communications, and Duran adds horizons. Even more importantly, Lonergan made it crystal clear that foundations means that the theologian has to go through intellectual, moral, and what he called religious conversions, which direct the theologian in his effort to discover and to communicate the truth. I call it the truth as it's embodied in Jesus Christ. That's the truth that makes us free. So I would conclude from this that using the language of Hebrews, a true heart and an ever-renewable mind and spirit are required in order to communicate the truth. And these are only attainable, the true heart, the purified conscience, through a conscience purified by the blood of Christ and through the sanctifying and elevating grace of God that allows us to transcend ourselves even to the extent of putting off the old self-preoccupied self. I said the old self-preoccupied self and to put on the new self who is always available for being renewed in the truth. It's the new self who sees Jesus. The new self sees Jesus with the eyes of the heart. Today, a friend of many in this church, and one about whom I have many good memories, Ed Lukowitz, has passed into the presence of the Lord. He had been on a ventilator for some time and suffering with this latest plague and some other conditions. And our condolences, our prayers to the throne of grace go out and up for Joanne, his wife, and for his family. But he sees Jesus now in a way that we can't see him. We see through a glass darkly now. Ed sees him face to face. Ed was a man of faith. I have many wonderful memories traveling with him on Friday nights to Elwood City. When I used to teach 11 times a week, one of those times included Elwood City on Friday nights. And we had wonderful time traveling, a group of us. And I'll always treasure those memories. It's the new self who sees Jesus even now with the eyes of the heart. And who knows and appreciates that he or she is but a small part of a solidarity of spirits. And a coalition of cardias, as the scripture calls them, hearts. A communion of human and divine persons. Nothing short of that is what's going on right now. Nothing short of that is what I'm communicating in teaching Hebrews. A communion of human and divine persons. Now by divine 
persons. I mean the persons of the Divine Trinity, the Father, the Spirit, the Son. To me, it would be an exercise in the absurd to engage in theology or in biblical interpretation apart from being in fellowship with the Father and the Son and under the gracious tutelage of the Spirit of Truth. But it would be also dishonest to say that our theological discoveries were dissociated from human influencers. Otherwise, why would God give communicative gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, whose task is more than just giving a canned message? And teachers called teachers in 1 Corinthians 12, called pastor teachers in Ephesians 4.11. At any event, any contributions that a theologian can make result from the indispensable grace of the spirit of truth, of course. Any contributions to theology and to accurate and helpful biblical interpretation will also be because of collaboration with others who have studied or who are studying while being continually challenged and converted. I've been around for 40-some years as a teacher in Pittsburgh, and a few more years before that in Vermont, I've seen a vast turnover of believers. They come and they go. And that's fine with me because people may have a short stint or a long stint in a given church. But some go away from the truth. And the reason is because they're not continually challenged, constantly renewed, constantly made authentic in their minds, spirits, and souls. And so it's a constant conversion, a constant transformation, a constant attentiveness, a constant growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, a never-ending forward push toward the mark of the prize of the upward summons of God in Christ Jesus. If ever someone seems to have come into his or her own as a teacher or as an artist or a musician, as a pioneer of science or medicine, philosophy or literature, you always have to imagine him or her being pushed forward by a team of predecessors. It's important to say the things I've said today to show that we don't speak out of a vacuum or out of thoughts that arise from the meditations of a fool on a hill or a hermit in a forest or a llama in la-la land. Our direction is toward letting Jerusalem into our minds, as we're going to see. And that will be, I think, the climactic thing that I'm supposed to teach on. For most of the year 2020, we've been doing a theological exegesis of Hebrews. We've come to discover that this homily inside a letter is particularly suited to the maturation of a community the completion of a society of justified spirits on the way to completion. To give a specific illustration of what we've been talking about, I want to refer to a very good question 
asked of Lonergan in 1975. He did a workshop then, and I'm grateful to Robert Duran for reproducing both the question and the answer in a lengthy footnote in his book, Trinity and History, on page 368 and 369. This very question and answer period can be found on a website, and I'll have it in print for you, www.bernardlonergan.com. And the question was particularly good right for where we are right now. And you'll have to excuse me, but a lot of today is a kind of a dialectic of me and Lonergan together, conversation, let's say, because it's bringing out some truths that otherwise could not be brought out. The question, I loved it. We, we talk about that's a good question. This is a really good question. The questioner said, recently you have spoken of a fifth level of human intentional consciousness whereby a plurality of self-transcending individuals achieve a higher integration in a community of love. Please expand on this. And Lonergan was a little flummoxed. He says, expand on it. You just did, basically. The question itself was so good that it actually summarized a lot of what we're teaching as well as what Lonergan taught. A fifth level of human intentional consciousness whereby a plurality of self-transcending individuals achieve a higher integration in a community of love. You know what that is? That's church. That's the church of the firstborn. That's the body of Christ. That's what a phalanx of advancing Christian soldiers ought to be, a plurality of self-transcending individuals who achieve a higher integration of living in a community of love. That's the question. Now, I, decide, I debated on whether or not to, complete, to leave the complete answer in my notes and to teach on it today, but I thought it was very enlightening. So when he said, please expand on this, Lonergan's answer involved a brief summation of the levels of consciousness up to what we now know is the fifth level. Here's what Lonergan said, and it's on record in the website here. There is very little to expand on this, he says. Everyone knows what it means. Getting there is another thing. But the constitution of the subject, that's you and me as we listen here today, and as you listen on your media or whatever it is, the constitution of the subject is a matter of self-transcendence. You are unconscious when you're in a coma or a deep sleep, a dreamless sleep. When you start to dream, consciousness emerges, but it's fragmentary. It's symbolic. You wake up and you're in the real world. But if you are merely gaping and understanding nothing, you're not very far in. And so you have another level of asking questions and coming to understand. There is the understanding that people can have from myth and magic. And so on. But arriving at the truth is a further step of being reasonable. Liberating oneself from astrology, alchemy, legend, and so on and so forth. And responsible. And this is all a matter of imminent development of the subject. But even before you're born, you're not all by yourself. 
and all during your life. Robinson Crusoe, he says, is a real abstraction, and if he really is all alone, his history does not go beyond himself. There is a living with others and a being with others. The whole development of humanity is in terms of common meaning. Not just my meaning, attention to my experience, development of my understanding, and so on. Common meaning is the fruit of a common field of experience. And if you're not in that common field of experience, you get out of touch. There's common understanding. And if you've not got that common understanding, well, you're a stranger. You have a different style of common sense and so on. Common judgments. If one man thinks it's tr if what one man thinks is true, another man thinks is false, well, they are not going to be able to do very much about anything insofar as those judgments are relevant to what they do. Common values, common projects, and you can have a common enterprise. And if you don't have common values, you'll be working at cross-purposes. Now here's where it gets rich. The highest form of this is love as opposed to hate. It's a hard saying. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Love them that persecute you. And so on. And here's where I take up my torch from him. I take the torch. I take the mantle. There are all kinds of things in the New Testament expanding on this. That's where I have to take up. Et voila. There are all kinds of things in the New Testament expanding on this. That's an understatement. This is where God calls us to take the torch to go for all kinds of things in the New Testament that expand on this fifth level of consciousness. On the level, listen carefully to this. On the level, this is where the level that you're going to live in 2021. On the level where an absolutely supernatural love takes over a coalition of hearts, a solidarity of human spirits joined to the Holy Spirit, who pours that love out in the heart and who teaches us by leading us into all the truth, truth that pertains to Jesus and the Father, truth that is embodied in Jesus, Introducing us to the reality that is Jesus. Letting us see with the enlightened eyes of our hearts, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, at the right side of the limitless and ineffable majesty of God in the unimaginable highest height above the heavens. Now this should be made clear. And this is what I woke up with this morning, this thought on my mind. Anybody can be functional on the fifth level of human consciousness. Anybody. It's not something you attain, really. Anyone can be functional on the intersubjective fifth level of human consciousness. But there can be a diabolical intersubjectivity where the doctrines of demons sublate the deliberations, decisions, and actions of the fourth level of consciousness take over the deliberation, the decision, 
and the actions of an individual. Socrates, one of the greatest philosophical teachers in history, said that he had a teacher whom he called a daemon, a daemon, a demon. And he didn't mean it in the sense that we think of demons, but he had a supernatural teacher, a daemon. Now, the Holy Spirit spoke explicitly in a Vatic way. Vatic happens to be the word of the day in my calendar on December 31st. I always think ahead. V-A-T-I-C, it means prophetic or oracular. The Holy Spirit spoke in this prophetic way in 1 Timothy 4, 1-2. Listen to this verse, two verses. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, same Spirit of he- in Hebrews 3, 7, The Spirit speaks explicitly that in the last times, certain ones will apostatize from the faith. Same word, apostasy, used in Hebrews 3.12. Turn away from faith. Directing their attentiveness to deceiving spirits. That's demon spirits that cause the heart to wander. And teaching of demon mentors. D-A-I-M-O-N is how I'd spell it here. Socrates claimed to have one of these. Through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences have been seared. So there is a society, an intersubjective society, in which demon teachers are sublating the decisions. So it's no big deal to be on the fifth level of consciousness What's the big deal is that if you're on the fifth level of consciousness and the love of God is integrating your thoughts and decisions and deliberations and actions and regulating you in a self-forgetting, self-transcending love. That's the big deal. That's the city on the hill. That's the city of the great king. That's the heavenly citizenship. That's the heavenly New Jerusalem in our minds. That's what redeems history. So this is remarkably related to Hebrews 13, 9, and 10, which we looked at recently. Don't be carried away by deceitful and strange doctrines. It's good for the heart to be established in grace. Not by foods which have never benefited their devotees. We have an altar from which those who serve the earthly tabernacle have no right to eat. So there can be a diabolical intersubjectivity. A coalition of wanderers whose hearts are being led astray. Again, and this is the thought that riveted me today. It isn't such a big deal to be functional on the fifth level of consciousness where there's interpersonal awareness. The big deal is to be functional in the fifth level of consciousness that's overtaken by the love of Christ. The love of Christ has overwhelmed me, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.14, because I have judged that if one died for all, Then all died. You see, the judgment that he made on the death of Christ, that it was for all, and all died when Christ died, that judgment was sublated by the love of Christ, which made him think differently about all mankind. From now on, he says, I don't see anybody after the flesh. So, the church of the firstborn that we find in Hebrews 12 
consists of the spirits of justified people. That's not just people in heaven. That's you. The spirits of justified people whose deliberations, decisions, and actions are sublated, that is, integrated and overcome and, and controlled by divine love. This takes the mentorship of divine persons, not the mentorship of demonic persons. Today, you can see it all over the place, all over social media and news media, people under the mentorship of demons, following doctrines of demons, seared consciences that let them do anything without any pains of conscience because they believe that their goal for a heaven-on-earth utopia justifies any actions whatsoever to get there. And so, this is where the Hebrews homily comes in. The doctrines of demons are expressly directed to blocking the view of Jesus so the eyes of the heart can't fix on him. To blind the eyes of the heart so that they can't see Christ the image of God. That's what even Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.3. If our gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those that are lost in whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of people so they cannot see the image of God, Christ Jesus, the glorious Christ. So the Hebrews homily spends a lot of time removing blockages of our view of him. Jesus said, if you're going to go pull a speck out of your brother's eye, make sure you get the log jam out of your own eye first. The same idea is here. The homily called Hebrews spends a lot of time removing the blockages, the logs out of our own view, our own eyes, so that we cannot see him. They are interior blockages that prevent a clear view of the ark, as Joshua put it, a clear view of Jesus, as it were. Joshua 3, 3 and following. The proof is right in the text. And I won't go far from the text ever. It's in the exegesis. Let me read my translation of Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying, the same Holy Spirit that said there's going to be doctrines of demons that people turn their attention to, the same Holy Spirit is saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the embitterment that led to revolt during the day of testing in the desert where your ancestors tested me, put me to the proof, even as they were seeing my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by this generation and said they're always led astray in heart. Yeah, they get on the fifth level of consciousness, but they're directed by demon mentors. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath if they enter into my rest meaning they will never enter my rest as they are in a state of unbelief. 
Watch out, brothers and sisters, it says, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God. Instead, keep encouraging one another every day as long as it's called today in order that no one of you is hardened by the deceptiveness of sin. Last December 29th, I dubbed this year 2020 the year of today. Little did I know how important it would be to live every day, one day at a time in this 2020 year. It was called the year of today. I got a new name for 2021, and I'm not going to tell you until the next message, which is going to be, yes, a New Year's message as well as an increment of Hebrews. As long as it's called today. Isn't it interesting that the year of today ends with our exegesis in Hebrews being about today? Today. Today, in verse 13. As long as it's called today. In order that no one of you is hardened by the deceptiveness of sin. For the proof that we've come, we've become, now sin there actually means it's the same as unbelief. Lack of trust in the living God, to take care of you in a socially, politically, and historically hostile climate. For the proof that we've become companions of the Christ, Hebrews 3.14, is that we hold firmly the reality until the end that we had at the beginning. Remember how convinced you were when you first received the insight of the efficacy of the finished work of Jesus Christ? You hold that same reality that you had at the beginning until the end. That's what makes you the companions of Christ, a society of Jesus indeed, a Jesuit, not in the denominational or parochial sense, but in the real sense. And finally, it says in 315 of, of Hebrews, as it is said today, once again, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did in the incident of embitterment that led to provocation. Have you seen any incidents lately of embitterment that led to violence, provocation, destruction of property, burning, killing? You're going to see a lot more of that. Sadly, because it's going to get worse before history gets pulled up and redeemed by a community in love. Here the emphasis falls more heavily on the word today in this Hebrews 3 passage. We've called 2020 the year of today. And again, I got another name in mind for 2021. But I want to round it off here in 3.16 to 19 in Hebrews to finish off this chapter. For who were those who heard and became embittered? Were they not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? In other words, these weren't just run-of-the-mill people. These are people that stood at the Red Sea and watched it open and watched the waters pile high and walked across the sea on dry land led by a Moses who was a wonderful deliverer and led by God, a man of God, a prophet, a type of Jesus Christ. They were the, those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. 
And by whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would not enter into his rest, if not those who disobeyed? We see then, says the Hebrew writer, that they weren't able to enter in because of unbelief. Do not fear, only believe, Jesus said in Mark 5, 36. Only by faith will you be established. Only by believing, Isaiah 7, 9. You and I have to learn to trust in the living God in the upcoming days in a realm where there's going to be hostility socially and politically toward Christian faith and religiously and governmentally and institutionally. And there's going to be social shaming and social cancellation and doxing and trolling and all the kinds of shaming that happens in society. Do you trust God to maintain your confession? Do I trust God to maintain my confession and to take care of us in such an environment? Or do we cave, as so many are, so many are doing so today? And we see it in leaders, we see it in politicians, we see it in judges, they cave. And so unbelief is the big blockade here. Note the synonymous terms unbelief and disobedience. Unbelief is disobedience. Notice the correlation between faith and obedience. Faith is obedience. For the readers of this homily, there was a beginning in which they came to the knowledge of the truth and were enlightened, especially in regard to who Jesus is. In 1978, when I came to Pittsburgh, I spent years on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's finished, it's finished, it's finished. We even named our church after that, finally. People came to an enlightenment as to the total efficacy of the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. More recently, we have seen that this is an efficacy that extends universally, not only to all humankind, but to all of creation and to the liberation of the creation itself from its slavery to corruption. We've come to this enlightenment. We hold this hope till the end, and that proves our companionship with Jesus Christ. This insight that they had in the efficacy of the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ created a concomitant confidence, a kind of unqualified assurance in the finished work of Christ, in the faithfulness of God. It engendered a certitude of hope for an eschatological resolution of the problem of sin and of evil. It opened the door to a livingness that is none other than Christ himself. For me, living is Christ. It opened up this livingness of Christ in them and for them. The confidence that accompanied their first encounter with the reality that is Jesus was a confidence that this pastor teacher urged that they hold fast to until the goal of completion is reached. To be a companion of Jesus is to be able to say, as he said to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. 
John 17, 4. To have the mind of Christ is to have the intention, the intention to complete what God gave us to do, to be a companion of Christ, just as it is to be his house, in Hebrews 3, 6, is to have confidence with patience added and to keep moving toward the mark of the prize of the upward call of God, the heavenly invitation, the invitation to participate in the heavenly New Jerusalem in our hearts and minds. Hebrews is all about a forward movement to completion. Now, to not be in agreement with this ever forward movement it's, is to be like those in the desert who thought about and intended to go back to Egypt, where they were enslaved, yeah, but taken care of by their tyrannical overlords. There's an apparent intention of the PT here, if we may be so bold as to do an intentionality analysis of the author of Hebrews, his intention is to urge his audience not to think about and intend a return to the practices of the old priesthood under Aaron, to come under the protection of old Jerusalem, and to come under the protection of Caesar, her Roman consort just to escape the social shaming and ostracism that they were facing as wanderers and pilgrims in this world. What will you do in 21 and 22 and 23 to escape the social ostracism that happens against people of faith in Jesus Christ? A similar situation pertains to our own time. Now, I'm going to close today's paragraph with this. This is all leading up to, if I may dare say, a prophetic consideration of the next year or years. A similar situation pertains to our own time as pertained to theirs. At the risk of sounding conspiracy theoretical, and the reason I'm not conspiracy-oriented is because I believe in a conspiracy over all conspiracies. It's called providence. I believe in a divine conspiracy that overrules all political and human conspiracies. And so I'm risking it here. At the risk of sounding conspiracy theoretical, what if, let me ask it this way, hypothetically, what if there were a powerful coalition of media and politicians under the control of foreign overlords who begin to censure any expression of views that they perceive to run counter to their agenda for world domination? What if there was such a thing? If an agenda were to gain real traction like that and make significant progress, if such a thing were to happen, it would be tempting, I think, for Christians to retreat from expressing their beliefs, not just their so-called religious beliefs, but their intelligent and intellectual beliefs and moral beliefs, too. It would simply be tempting for Christians to retreat from expressing their beliefs in order to avoid the inevitable censorship 
and ultimate persecution that comes by bucking an ideological megatrend, such as we have it, for example, under the deceptive name progressivism today. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not expounding a conspiracy theory per se, though a person would have to be a fool not to recognize that conspiracy is inevitable in politics, in ideologies. But there is a divine conspiracy called providence. Joseph knew it in Isaiah 50, rather Genesis 50, 18 to 20, and that separated him from his brothers. He knew that what they intended for evil, God meant for good. There's a providential conspiracy, and if you're not hooked into it in the fifth level of consciousness, you're going to fall apart in 2021 and years to come. Most of all, there's 1 Corinthians 2.8. There was a conspiracy to crucify the Lord of glory. They never would have done it if they'd have known the result of that. 1 Corinthians 2.8. Now, I'm not suggesting that true Christianity leans politically to the right or the left. That's a fool's errand to do that. You can't say true Christianity leans politically left. You can't say it leans politically right. You can't point to Acts and the so-called communal community of Acts because that does not refer to any kind of Marxist collectivism at all. You can't point right and say that being a petty moralist is what it is to be a Christian either. I'm not suggesting that true Christianity leans politically to the right or to the left. You know where it leans? Vertical. It's oriented vertically. And as such, it's bound to ruffle the feathers of the ideological right and the ideological left. Uranopolitan thinking. Uranopolitan is what I use now. It's a new word. Urano from heaven. Politan from city. Politan from polis. Uranopolitan thinking is how we're going to have to think. The redeemers of history, those who redeem the time because the days are evil, are Uranopolitan thinkers. They think by letting a new Jerusalem into their mind. They let the mind of Christ be in them in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Philippians 2, 5 and following. 1 Corinthians 2, 16. They allow for the renewing of the mind in Romans 12, 1 and 2 and Ephesians 4, 23. And that's what leads them to a self-transcendence in which they put off the old deceptive man and put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge and true knowledge. Uranopolitan thinking from Uranus for heaven and Paulus for city, heavenly city, isn't just Countercultural. To define Christianity as being countercultural is to insult Christianity. We aren't countercultural. It is otherworldly altogether. It isn't countercultural, it's otherworldly. And therefore, misunderstood or not understood by any earthly minded person whose wisdom is merely psychic, earthly, or demonic taught by demon mentors, 
James 3.15. The deception of sin, and that's related to the deceptiveness of the old man and of the old serpent and the deception of Isha, also Eve, the thing that she saw in the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was its apparent ability to make her wise. She wasn't living in some kind of overt thing we call sinfulness. She saw something as a good that God forbade. And so the deception of sin is that it looks and appears as a good. It's a good thing if I go back and practice the, the practices of Judaism in order to avoid the persecution. It's a good thing that I don't talk too much about the cross of Christ because then I can avoid persecution. Unbelief can be rationalized as a good thing. The deception of sin is that it appears as a good, as something that would be good for you, like the meat pots of Egypt, or the approbation of Pharaoh, or any of the pleasures of sin in Egypt that Moses left, and he had the pleasures of sin, meaning he had the applause and celebrity of all of Egypt, the glorious kingdom of Egypt. He left it behind to suffer reproach with the people of Christ. In the final analysis, the great blockade is not the deceptiveness of ideologies. It's the deceptiveness of sin. Apate des hamartias. What a way to end a message. But end it we will. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. May it provide incentive and encouragement for many so that we can see in our time and in our immediate future so that our children can see and experience and be part of a community of divine and human persons, a coalescence of hearts, a coalition of souls overtaken by the love of God who redeemed the time and actually become part of the redemption of history from its current downtrend. We thank you and ask this with absolute confidence that you'll do it. In Jesus' name, amen.